You're listening to Conversation Balloons, interviews with experts and friends about how the generations can help each other thrive. I'm your host, Leah Farish. Check out this episode. Today we have an exciting program with Dr. David Gozal, and we're going to be talking about a universal issue of interest, sleep. Dr. Gozal is currently the Smith Endowed Chair and the Chairman of the Department of Child Health at the University of Missouri, as well as the Physician-in-Chief of the University of Missouri Health Children's Hospital. He's done extensive research on genetic and cellular regulation of hypoxia and sleep disruption and all kinds of issues in sleep disorders in both adults and children. And so he's a perfect person to talk to about sleep in all the stages of life. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Gozal about sleep in the earlier stages of life And we're honored to have him in our little studio here at Conversation Balloons. So first of all, thank you for having me in your program. Uh, Obviously, it's always uh, wonderful when anybody's interested about uh, my passion, my professional passion in life. Uh, I will confess that I'm not a very long sleeper or a very heavy sleeper, uh, maybe. uh, uh, But I will not claim that lack of sleep is the reason for my success, actually, maybe I would uh, certainly argue that those who sleep well are much more uh, empowered to succeed in life than those who do not sleep enough or sleep too much. So um, uh, uh, the need of sleep follows a U U curve, uh, if you wish. There are those uh, that need more sleep and those that need less sleep, and then we are all in the middle, right? Uh, But if you sleep too little, it's obviously... based on your need of sleep, let's say that uh, we need eight hours. Um, as, as the average person, we need eight hours, and it doesn't matter what the number of hours is because each of us is a little different. But if you were to sleep less than your real need uh, or more than your real need, then something must you're doing something that is not okay. So let's start with that concept because it's a very important concept. Now, um, you asked me about infancy, and I would like to take us a little bit before infancy, because that's where everything starts. It all starts with pregnancy. True. The beginning of life starts with that moment in which uh, an oocyte and a sperm get together and say, hello, we have matched each other for life, <laughs> and life starts. So uh, that irreversible encounter um, has defined who we're going to become. And during during pregnancy, um, mom, and therefore the baby that is in the fetus that is inside the mom, and um, live in very similar rhythms. And at some point in time, the nervous system and the rest of the cells will start developing that rhythmicity of the 24 hours that is dictated by the, by the mother's uh, uh, rhythms. And at some point in time, the fetus will start sleeping. And that's the first time that recording of sleep will take place, and it's very, very early in pregnancy. Wow. So we tend to forget that when that baby is finally born 
in the labor and delivery or in at home or whatever the venue might be, that healthy, wonderful human being that is now coming to join the family, that that baby has already been sleeping for many, many weeks. Wow, I never thought of that. And in fact, has been sleeping most of the time. Because two things are important. One is dream sleep is actually the the major component of sleep in the fetus. So the vast majority of sleep is actually dream sleep, uh, what we call rapid eye movement sleep. And this is the time that during that dream sleep, we the baby, the baby or the infant or the fetus will start breathing and do all the exercises that are needed in order to create that, develop the lungs, which by the way, the, he or she is not using is developing the brain and is interacting with the mom to tell all sorts of things that are important and moving. So all this is terribly important. And if we don't do that, if we baby a fetus does not breathe, the lungs don't develop. The brain doesn't develop very well. Right. So all that tells you is that sleep, even before we're born, is already an extremely important function. So if the mother is overstimulated or if the infant, the, the fetus is drug exposed, that could interfere with that. So any type of elements that disturb the fetus by virtue of activities of the mother uh, or ingestion of all sorts of whatever that might be may have tremendous consequences not just for the baby as they, they're born, but for the whole life. Wow. So I, I, I always want to say that before we're born, we were already sleeping. Oh, well, okay. So that's uh, a message that I think is terribly important. Of course, the other thing that happens is, and uh, all women uh, know this, then during their pregnancy, their sleep also gets changed. Their hormones... Uh, the movements of the baby, um, changes that occur in their body and in their in, in many other functions, leads to changes in the way that they sleep. And in a way, um, might be some people want to see this as a way of training towards mother, early motherhood. I would like to say that this is a sacrifice that moms make towards really making their babies. Uh, get the love that they want to give, right? And so uh, the reality is that the amount of sleep that a mother, even during pregnancy, gets is reduced. Uh, and so in many ways, they're sleep deprived even before the baby is born. Oh, wow. That's a, coming in with a deficit. And now you have a baby that has a very different rhythm mm -hmm. than because the way that a baby sleeps is very different from the way that uh, adults sleep. We are born and usually have about a three-hour cycle. And that's really because of the needs to feed, right? Um, our metabolism as an infant, very young infant and newborn, is that we need to feed our circadian systems. That's while that is regulated by the 24-hour cycle is not yet very fully developed. And the metabolic needs, the growth needs, dictate that in order for us to continue living well as an infant, I need to eat from my mom um, every three hours, every two and a half hours. 
So I'm going to wow, wow, wow to serve as the alarm that will trigger all the things that I get, all the things that I need in order to grow and develop um, in the best possible way. Well, uh, it's okay if it happens during the normal daylight where mom is probably awake because of the circadian clock. But when it happens at midnight, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, assuming that in between the baby is sleeping like a, like a log, it's still very disruptive to the sleep of the mother. And so as it is, there's a price to be paid <laughs> by the mom and by the parents. Uh, if the father participates, which I would encourage all parents uh, to be involved in such a wonderful opportunity to bond and engage with the baby. But there is a, an ultimate trade-off. Um, your sleep will be affected because the baby will go back to sleep. You need to go to work the next day. and <laughs> Or you need to function with other kids at home uh, or whatever that might be. So whatever life requires from you during the daytime, which is our usually when we are most of the time awake, um, that is a price that needs to be paid. So infants require much more sleep than adults. Uh, we will talk about it in a second. The infants, when they're born, require usually between 18 to 22 hours of sleep. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily come at the convenient times that parents want them to do it. And obviously there will be interruptions because in between they need to feed, they need to be changed, they need all these other physiological needs that are need to be served since they are so dependent on their parents for everything that they, that they require. What do you think of uh, the use of sound machines or white noise machines in the bedroom of an infant? Frankly, um, I don't see why they're necessary. Okay. Remember that the baby uh, was born with a substantial noise inside the womb. Mm -hmm. The heart, the breathing, the voice, uh, the, all the movements of the intestine, uh, noises from the outside get transmitted very, very uh, readily through fluid. We know that sound transverses fluid much more readily than air. So um, I frankly, and they are, you know, very brisk and, and sudden changes in, in sounds all the time. Um, I don't see to what extent um, that kind of, uh, you know, white noise will have any type of major effect. Now, it still doesn't mean that soothing music or musical tones are the infant ear is sensitive to those. Um, and therefore lullabies uh, have a reason to exist since they, by association, there is a learning paradigm that indicates that a lullaby has is fraught with the presence of the parent, of the nurturing, etc. And that learning takes place. So it is reassuring, reduces separation, reduces uh, and facilitates self-soothing and many of the other elements that uh, the baby needs. And so, yes, it can be helpful. But white noise, I don't believe that that's been studied enough to provide you with a definitive answer, but I would clearly doubt that alone, without any white noise being associated with a reward system, 
that then induces self-soothing or induces reassurance, I'm not sure that that would be very helpful. Okay. How about swaddling? So, um, by the way, it's the swaddling is the weighted blankets that are so in fashion today. Uh, we know that uh, weighted blankets, uh, nice studies that have recently appeared, indicate that they trigger or stimulate the release of melatonin, which makes us, uh, this is the hormone that we release from a gland in the middle of the brain called the pineal gland. It is the hormone that opens the gates of sleep for us. It does not force us to sleep. It says, please come in. If you come in now, my door to sleep is open. And then when it finally goes away and the hormone goes down, then the door closes again and it's much more difficult to fall asleep. So swaddling has probably the same effect. In other words, it creates an environment that is conducive to maybe the jointure that facilitates the onset of sleep in a baby that obviously is aligned and needs to, to go to sleep. And as, as we talked about, an infant who has a need of 20 hours of sleep a day, it's very likely that if you swaddle the baby, the baby will fall asleep. Yeah, okay. Um, until how old should uh, a parent think about swaddling, if at all? Well, uh, I don't know that I think it's a matter of preference. Um, uh, frankly, um, I'm not sure that swaddling is essential or necessary. Um, if the baby and the cultural background or the habits are that this is the way that they would like, uh, two cautions. Uh, one, do not uh, swaddle the baby in a way that the baby is at risk of being overheated. That is not a very healthy thing. Uh, overheating is dangerous to babies, can change the way they breathe, can change the way they respond to uh, to the stress of being overheated. So this could be potentially uh, dangerous. But uh, normal swaddling uh, that is comforting to the baby and is part of a tradition that has been tested by many, many generations of of, of, uh, of, of in the past, uh, you know, it all depends of what they want to do. I personally never swaddled my five kids, uh, but I can certainly vouch for the fact that occasionally swaddling was reassuring and conveyed that same self-soothing ability to the baby and therefore facilitated both their sleep onset or the sleep resumption if they were to wake up. Does a, a baby um, experience any long-term deficits if in infancy they don't get good quality sleep? And if so, what are the, the harms from poor quality sleep in infancy? It's a very Tough question because, uh, as we talked about, sleep is a fundamental need for the development of the baby. Um, but each of us, each of us, has a unique personalized trajectory in life, right? So it is very difficult to normally all babies should be able to sleep based on their needs, right? And assuming that the environment, the parents are the ideal the ideal environment, right? And so only the baby sleeps or doesn't sleep or sleeps more or sleeps less. We would assume that if the baby is healthy and there's really nothing that would affect them, that the baby would sleep according to their needs. Now, we know that babies who had, who were restless babies, who were crying babies, who were disruptive of parents' babies, who were 
um, babies who had um, what parents will call very light sleep. Oh my God, I would go into the bedroom of the baby or would even get close and the baby would startle and immediately start crying. So these crying babies that can drive parents sometimes really nuts in, in the night. Um, those babies have a tendency, have shown statistically to be at risk of developing attention deficit disorders later in life, to have a variety of concentration and inattention issues more readily to have psychological problems of anxiety or uh, other behavioral features that would make them different from babies who slept wonderful and were, oh my God, they were angels at <laughs> night when, they, when you were babies, right? So, so these things have a certain association. In no way they are causal. Uh, and so the question is, what prompted a baby to have a restless sleep as opposed to a baby having a very sound and self-soothing sleep that did not result in these disruptive behaviors at night. We need to go back to genes and environment and pregnancy and all of this as determinants of what may have triggered a certain baby to manifest at this. So if differences already existed from conception, then we have to assume that the, all the behavior of sleep during that period of early infancy, that one is restless, crying baby is inconsolable versus the one that is rested, sleeping like an angel, that these are already telling us that something happened sometime during the development that is dictating these behaviors and that therefore there's a risk towards the future. And could I ask you about uh, the practice of sleeping, of the parent sleeping with the baby in the bed? Okay. Um, Yes, you can ask me, and, uh, <laughs> and it is an area of substantial uh, contention um, for two reasons. One, uh, because many, many uh, societies or cultures have had co-sleeping co as a fundamental component of their behavior. So, and it doesn't matter whether we go to cold countries or warm countries, there's a lot of co-sleeping in early uh, societies, um, safety, proximity, breastfeeding, uh, all the good things that go along with bonding, um, uh, et cetera, right? Um, there's wonderful studies by uh, uh, a group of investigators that uh, Sarah McMorrow and others that really looked at this co-sleeping and the interactions that take place between the parent, particularly the mother, and the infant during that element of co-sleeping. And uh, there were obviously several elements that are very positive, right? As I indicated, the proximity uh, fosters the bonding, fosters the reassurance, fosters the soothing, fosters the breastfeeding. Um, which ultimately is very good for the baby. And we all talked about the benefits of breastfeeding as a whole, even for periods that at least the first six months of, of life. Um, there are also disadvantages. Smothering can happen. Mothers and, and the guilt that go. The possibility that this may be associated with sudden infant death syndrome. Um, and there's been some studies that have hinted that the possibility 
that smothering or sleeping and not that maybe co-sleeping would not be as safe of a sleeping environment for the infant as one would be led to believe. Uh, the jury's still out. Um, and I think that we need to be uh, cognizant that uh, there are advantages, there are potential disadvantages, and that like everything else that we do in life, we need to make a decision that is informed on the basis of whatever is out there. I would argue that under certain circumstances, uh, co-sleeping might be good. Uh, let's say the baby is not feeling well or has a cold or is uh, needs a little bit more of attention during certain periods of life. But it is also, if perpetuated as co-sleeping, is disadvantageous in the sense that co-sleeping would reduce the ability of the baby to self-soothe, to learn self-soothing, to establish their own rhythms as opposed to be guided by some of the rhythms of the, of the parents. And so have your pick, make your decision, and then stand by it and don't ask for help. <laughs> okay. Um, one last question with infants. What's the most common thing that you're able to advise parents to do to help their infants? to self-soothe or, or to fall asleep or stay asleep? So um, infants are great, wonderful learners. And like all of us, they learn by experience. If your experience, if you know, the experience that you expose your infant is that every type that they say, ah, there's a mom, a touch, a bringing into the arms, uh, etc then I have learned that every time I say, ah, I will get everything I really like. Breastfeeding, warm, loving, soothing, lullabies, shaking, uh, swaddling, whatever it is, right? So since I'm a wonderful learner, I have learned that everything that I want, all I have to do is to do, wow, and that's it. That is the price to pay for a mother or a parent that will abide by those teaching rules to their infant. The other side of it is you don't do any of the kind, and the baby will cry themselves to, uh, to oblivion. Uh, let me put it this way. That is also not a very good thing, because it creates potentially a sense of negativity. Everything is negative, right? You are reinforcing a negative behavior that is the more you cry the less you're going to get anything so wolf 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 maybe sometimes i really need you to come but since cry all it does is to leave me alone maybe that's not a good way to learn to a behavior that is, is fraught with the negativity of always being not getting anything in return so there's a, a a middle a middle ground right and so Having reassuring voices, but at a distance, teaching the baby that at the beginning that the distance or no touch, um, certain elements can be obtained, but only when really necessary. Let's say the baby uh, needs to be changed. So that, that will take place. You cry because you're hungry. You will get what you need. But if you cry just to get something else, a parent may show up, but that does not necessarily mean that you're going to get into the arms or get shaken or, or you know, whatever. Hear music. Um, uh, hear music on, uh, or listen to the news in, 
uh, or the music that the mom wants to listen to. So I think that there needs a little bit of what I call the degrees of tolerance and the acceptance that this is a joint decision where some concessions can be made, but not to the point that there's slavery on the, on the other side. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. Sensible. Let's move on to talking about the children in the preschool and elementary years. What's sleep like for them? And uh, what do we need to provide to make sure it's healthy? So the important things to remember is that uh, we talked about the infants. As you grow, the amount of hours that you need starts reducing. This is a period of time that the first few years of life, particularly the first two or three years, um, is a time that our brain is developing tremendously. Um, the bodies are growing very fast. Therefore, the physiological needs of sleep are necessary. This is a time in which the growth hormone and many other hormones are important to building the blocks of everything that makes us uh, are, are clearly very active. And then there's a period of continued growth, but um, where the needs per se, uh, the, the metabolic level, are not as big as they used to be. So you can reduce a little bit at the expense of physical activity, intellectual activity, which then prompt the need for sleep. When you say at the expense of it, I'm not sure well, I understand. You sleep less, and therefore you have more time. To, to the benefit of physical activity and school and things. Right, to so the benefit, so at the expense of sleep, if you wish. Yeah, yeah, right? okay. So sleep is reduced. Got it. So um, so these, these uh, lead to the fact that, one, uh, you have less sleep, um, you are more physically active, more intellectually active, you start building all these sophisticated cognitive elements that are very important. And in order to acquire them and establish them, you need then to have a much better concentrated sleep that is a very high quality. And that, again, is manifest in the fact that we have now transitioned from the infant to the what's going to be essentially the 24-hour cycle, and that we can consolidate during the pre-kindergarten or kindergarten all the way to school, to primary school, you now don't need your naps. You have consolidated your sleep into the night. You have uh, your daytime. But during the night, you need to have the amount of sleep that you really need in order to consolidate all the learned elements, both physical and intellectual, and make sure that these take root and enable you to continue developing as you, as you should. So if you disrupt that, right, if you disrupt that, whether for whatever reason, you go to sleep too late, uh, you don't let, uh, you, the, the environment is not conducive to sleep, there's too much noise or, or disruptions, um, all of these, or if you have a disease of sleep, obviously, uh, anything that really causes the sleep to be altered may have important consequences to both the growth, height, etc. Uh, metabolic regulation. So if you don't sleep enough, you are at risk of start a kid not already eating too much because of the way that our hormones respond to the lack of sleep or not learning enough and not being able to concentrate. And so these are all very important elements that link healthy sleep into a healthy childhood, healthy development. I heard you say in another interview uh, that the impact on a child uh, 
with poor sleep, uh, especially due to respiratory issues, is equal to that of a, of a child with cancer on chemo. The quality of life of children that have sleep disorders, um, that impact is tremendous, and we don't realize it. Um, uh, let, let me put it in translated maybe to parents in, in a little different way. Any child that any child should wake up on their own at the time that you want them to wake up. They need to wake up, and they should wake up happy. So imagine that your child now is difficult to arouse. You need to wake them up, and they're grumpy. That is already a very important sign. Look, why would any child be a grumpy? There's no reason to be grumpy. You should be the happiest of kids, right? So that means, and if during the rest of the day, the baby or the child is, is then recovers and is okay, then that awakening, that early morning or morning awakening that is grumpy, difficult to awake, is telling us that something is happening in their sleep that is not okay. And so let's figure it out because ultimately it's going to affect tremendously their quality of life. Yeah, you talk about uh, fragmented sleep and how that can happen uh, with apnea and things like that, starting with children, and to watch for snoring plus. Can you tell the audience what snoring plus is? Sure. Uh, so first things, uh, no child should snore. Okay, so what we call snoring, um, any child can have a cold and will have a little, you know, congestion in their nose, and then they will have a little snoring during that period of time. But if your child routinely, week after week, at least three nights a week, when you go into their room before you go and retire to sleep in your bedroom, you hear your child snore, um, that is indicating that something is already potentially problematic. So when do you need to consult with a physician or make sure that you go to a pediatrician and you should start really being concerned is when, in addition to having at least three nights a week, which what we call habitual snoring, if in addition to that, a, a symptom comes along, that's the plus. So they complain of headaches, they have difficulty behaviors, behavioral issues, they have bedwetting that they cannot control, they have um, um, a lot of nightmares and a lot of night terrors, they have uh, bruxism, they have, um, um, uh, you know, they grinding they their have, teeth. Yeah, bruxism, which is grinding of their teeth. Um, they have a lot of uh, ear infections. Uh, so imagine a constellation of any of these appearing in addition to habitual snoring. That is telling you that something really needs attention. And so that's why I call it the snoring plus. Okay. So they should see a doctor at that point. It's probably the best way to get get started on the process okay. of evaluating what's going on. Well, um, let's talk now about adolescent sleep, and uh, that's a, a dear subject. I read somewhere in a survey of, of teenagers, what is your number one favorite activity? The most common answer was sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, may I contradict you? That's a that's not a real truthful answer. Okay. Um, the first thing is a misconception. Adolescents need actually need more sleep than kids in primary school. 
So the moment that you reach adolescence, your teenage years, the hormonal changes that come along with adolescence, we all know that there's suddenly a major acceleration of growth. There's a lot of other hormonal changes that take place. Our circadian cycle gets changed. We become West Coast residents, even if we live in the East Coast. Suddenly, we are living in Los Angeles as opposed to Boston. A a time zone difference. You have time zone differences. You are actually, and the amount of sleep, the duration of sleep is obviously higher and longer than those of an 80-year-old or 70-year-old. So teenagers do tend to become night owls naturally. They're not just being naughty. (laughs) That's correct. That's absolutely correct. They tend they tend, based on these changes in circadian regulation, to become night owls for a while. They also uh, need more sleep. So if before they were sleeping at 8 and waking up at 6, and that was perfectly fine, the 10 hours of sleep, now they may want to go to sleep at 11, but they need to sleep till 9. Okay? And that clearly is not working for them, right? So because now they need to go to middle school or high school and God, oh my God, I have to wake up even earlier when, as particularly with many schools that have not delayed their school starts. And so now we have a Houston, we have a problem because now you have first period of school, everybody's asleep. After lunch, everybody's asleep in, in, in classroom, right? So tell me how, uh, that's why they will tell you, well, that's when I want to sleep. But as they get towards the evening, then they can't sleep because their circadian is pushing them to be, again, West Coasters as opposed to be East Coasters, right? And so, no, I don't want to sleep. I don't feel sleepy enough. I need my time to go actually to sleep. The circadian is pushing them to delay their sleep. So when adolescents tell us that they, their most important activity is sleep, is sleep under their own terms. So let me go sleep late when it's time for me to go to sleep, and then let me sleep until I wake up. And since they are sleep-deprived throughout the week, this is why during the weekend, when they can allow themselves, they will wake up at noon, one, two o'clock in the afternoon, and of course, Uh, That's the most important activity because they're trying to catch up on their sleep. And in some ways, uh, it's partially possible. But really, if you think of the mathematics, it doesn't add up. It can't bank it. Yeah, if you lose two hours of sleep every night during the week, you have lost 10 hours. You catch up, let's say, four hours during the weekend in addition to what you need. You still owe yourself six hours. Do that 50 weeks of of the year. And now you really have, a, you're bankrupt. You sleep bankrupt, okay? What effect do uh, screens have on uh, teenagers in terms of sleep? Well, this is a, a great question. Um, we, screen use is unavoidable. This is what our society and our technological advances have, have, have taken place. A lot of studies would indicate that certain types of light emitted by the by the screens have impact on circadian activity and the ability to induce sleep. So that's one aspect. But the content is also important. Mm. If you're watching a very boring movie, 
no matter how much light you get, you will fall asleep if you're really sleep deprived. And if you're moving, watching a, a, a movie that is really that you love and is exciting, of course you won't. By the same token, uh, all sorts of games that require your participation are very less likely to favor sleep and induce you to sleep. And that excitement may supersede the need to sleep so that you don't feel how tired you are or sleepy you are, and therefore postpone even further uh, the sleep onset, which then the repercussions of next day, having to wake up at whatever time and you're not going to do it. Now, leave me alone. I don't, I'm not going to go to school today. So, so we need to start thinking of those terms. Second, the lack of sleep or the use, overuse, in, in a way, excessive use or more extended use of, of screens may have adverse impacts, not only on the sleep quality and the sleep quantity, but then have psychological and psychiatric consequences, metabolic consequences. You don't sleep enough, you will be, tend to be more hungry, feel more hungry even if you've eaten enough because the ability of the insulin to actually work into your body is not as good. So now you feel hungry, you're going to eat more, you're going to eat more, you're going to exercise less because you're tired, you're sleepy. Why would I go and let me stay in, the, let me do the exercise of going from the couch all the way to the refrigerator <laughs> rather than go outside and play, right? Or do physical activity. And um, of course, cognitively, you're going to be difficult. It's difficult to focus when you're sleepy. It's difficult to learn. And it's difficult to maintain your good mood. As I said, many times you have a grumpy person. So grumpy can over time become depressive, change your mood, change your view of life. So there's a lot of very sphere of multiple consequences where sleep is in the middle and sleep is tightly, tightly related to screen use as a manifestation of reduced sleep or fragmented sleep. Uh -huh. Obesity, how does that figure in to a, a teen's, with interference with a teen's sleep? So um, so it's, it's a love-hate relationship. Because if I'm sleepy, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I eat, I eat, I gain weight, I gain weight, I hate myself, therefore I sleep less, or I sleep at times that are not necessarily because I can't adjust. Um, and... If I develop obesity, I'm at risk of having poor quality sleep because I don't sleep as well. Uh, I may have sleep apnea. I may have other manifestations of poor sleep. And so all of this starts feeding into each other. And it's very difficult sometimes to extricate one from the, from the other. There are studies that indicate that obese children that were allowed to sleep sufficiently and well had AIDS, were had an easier task in losing their weight and feeling better about themselves and engaging in physical activity that facilitated that weight loss efforts. Conversely, if you take away a sleep disorder and cure it, then, for example, if you had sleep apnea, take away the sleep apnea, then these children may actually lose more easily weight because now the disruption of sleep is facilitating um, their healthier recovery. Uh, of other things that, such as obesity that may be present. Dr. Gozal, you have been so generous with this expertise, and I, I just have loved talking to you. You have a warm heart that comes through along with your brilliant brain. And so we thank you for your time, and we ask you to please come back 
and talk to us about the later stages of life. Would you do that? I would be delighted. My last message to all before maybe we'll, we come back, uh, if you have me, uh, will be be well if you sleep well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Gozal. Well, everyone, rate and review us and uh, come back to Conversation Balloons next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Conversation Balloons. Look for more episodes and information at leahfarish.com. That's L-E-A-H-F-A-R-I-S-H dot com. And follow me on Facebook and Instagram.